Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind on the Progressive Radio Network. One of the interesting things about uh, studying the peculiar, anomalous, and weird sides of human experience is that uh, traditionally, we in the West have made a significant distinction between studying those things within our own environs and studying them uh, for all of those strange, uh, uh, ancient, uh, faraway cultures that we discover through uh, exploration and travel. Uh, When the West encounters weirdness outside of its borders, it sends anthropologists. But when the West encounters weirdness within its borders, it traditionally sends scientists or some manner of uh, representatives of science in order to say, hey, 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 that's not scientific. It must be completely delusional. This does not mean that the anthropologists who are sent out to dis- discover uh, what's going on within shamanic ceremonies in South America or uh, in Africa or altered states, trance practices in Bali aren't often using the same kinds of scientific language. But there's a very different sense of the role of culture, of symbolism, of tradition, of psychology that goes into describing what happens in anthropologically weird situations rather than in the West, where uh, typically you have a, you know, let's say a parapsychology lab where they're trying to do experiments that uh, replicate the strict conditions of, um, you know, peer-reviewable, falsifiable scientific studies, uh, rather than looking at things anthropologically. This is starting to change, or actually has been changing for quite a long time, and it's really illuminating when you begin to uh, apply the um, lenses of anthropology to uh, your own culture. In fact, it's one of the the most fun things to do with anthropology, to my mind. Of course, there's many uh, domains of anthropology. When I say it that way, it sounds like it's simple. But really, uh, to turn the lens that has traditionally been focused on pre-modern, more or less traditional or mixed uh, cultures in the far-flung places of the world and to take those lenses and and look instead at our own experience, a lot of things pop out that would not otherwise appear, particularly when they're forced into the is this real or is this, uh, you know, a pile of hooey uh, decision-making that goes on within um, strict scientific rationalism. Uh, and one of the, uh, the figures who's really been plying these waters with great uh, thoroughness and uh, conviction um, over the last five or six years that I've been aware of his work uh, is our guest today, Jack Hunter. Uh, Jack is currently uh, a uh, PhD student at uh, the University of Bristol, and we'll be talking about some of his work on spirit mediums and their their influence on the development of uh, models of consciousness. But uh, he's also the editor of Paraanthropology, uh, a wonderful online journal which brings anthropological approaches to the paranormal. And this is precisely what I'm talking about. If you look at the paranormal strictly through quote-unquote scientific lenses with the kind of demands that you would have in a in a you know experiment for chemistry or quantum physics or something, you get certain kinds of 
uh, results, certain kinds of ways of thinking through the problems, but things look very differently when you uh, look at them with anthropological lenses. And paraanthropology is uh, one robust approach uh, to these issues, uh, uh, allowing more possibility into the into the room, more sense that maybe people's experiences that seem to be so resonant and similar across. Uh, human history across the the globe and in, in, in all manner of cultures, we have these quote unquote anomalous experiences, encounters with spirits, uh, telepathy, uh, altered states, uh, you know, convictions of about other dimensions of reality. Let's look at these things cross culturally. Let's try to understand how we can think about them, not just in terms of what science would say is possible and not possible, but also what our experience of being humans, uh, working in society, using language, immersed in culture, what kinds of, how those approaches help shed light um, on these uh, uh, issues. Uh, Jack's work is also particularly focused on the issue of uh, spirits and the nature of these entities, something that comes up not only in discussions of spirit possession in traditional communities, but also, of course, uh, in psychedelic culture, both traditional psychedelic culture, if you will, you know, in the in the in the Amazon or or in Oaxaca, the mountains of Oaxaca, but uh, also in contemporary culture, where there's a, a very robust discussion about the nature of psychedelic entities, and some social scientists who are interested in these anthropological approaches to the paranormal are indeed looking at the some of the tricky questions that are raised, not just in terms of what people are experiencing, but really whether we can say anything about. Uh, the, the the fundamental reality or the ontology that uh, they reflect. So I'm sure we'll be getting into some of this stuff uh, with Jack. Jack, thanks for joining us on uh, on Expanding Mind. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Great. Well, you know, let's start off with with talking about para anthropology. It's a it's a mm -hmm. great journal. It's a great term. Uh, and I, I know that there has been, you know, a long history of people using anthropological approaches to look at altered states of consciousness uh, and, and various kinds of paranormal or, or bizarre experiencing, mm -hmm. bizarre experiences, at least since, uh, you know, the 60s and 70s and the turn towards altered states. But, yeah. I, but I, I always got the sense that you're doing something maybe with a little with some with a very specific focus. So when you came to found that that journal, what were you thinking about? What was the gap you wanted to fill? And what was the particular nuance of the term paraanthropology that you wanted to bring to these uh, discussions? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, like you said, there has been a long tradition in anthropology of dealing with things like spirits and dealing with uh, shamanism and different kinds of altered states of consciousness going right back even before the 60s right back to uh, the founding fathers of anthropology people like E.B. Tyler and James Fraser they were you know very interested in these subjects but they kind of approached them with almost um, almost a dismissive attitude I mean they were they were interested in them but they weren't necessarily interested in entertaining the possibility that they might be real things uh, which is interesting because automatically they're placing their own kind of ontological assumptions um, onto these phenomena. So when you look at their writings on things like spirit mediumship, shamanism, witchcraft, and magic, they're always coming from this, uh, you know, it's kind of like a Victorian, um, almost 
like a developmentalist or evolutionist kind of frame where the beliefs of primitive people, as they called them, uh, basically anyone who wasn't British or European or American, um, are kind of you know, primitive and irrational. So one of the things I wanted to do was kind of flip that on its head a little bit and starts to think in, in different ways and maybe think about applying other kinds of um, ontological frames to think about the paranormal. So moving away from a dismissive attitude, which, I mean, anthropology has been generally doing that over time anyway. Um, but, yeah, taking it into, a, like, a whole new dimension. So when I started paranthropology, it was really... It actually it came out of a, a meeting with the Afterlife Research Centre which my supervisor, Fiona Bowie, established in Bristol. And we decided that there needed to be a journal to talk about these kinds of things um, in the UK specifically. Because in um, America, there is the uh, Journal for the Society for the Anthropology of Consciousness, which kind of deals with similar things, but nothing like that in the UK. And I was also noticing that although the Anthropology of Consciousness started out dealing with uh, explicitly kind of paranormal and psi kind of topics. Over time, it had kind of moved away from that a little bit, um, thinking more about consciousness itself, which is you know, equally as weird, but less to do with, you know, like poltergeists and things. So I thought um, it'd be nice for anthropology to kind of reconnect with that more kind of um, visceral paranormal stuff, the really paranormal stuff like ghosts and poltergeists and psi and mediums and things like that. So that's really where it came from. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's like it's like forcing the issue. You know, it's like it's in a, it, though consciousness is as weird in a way, it's a safer exploration because there's always yeah. the kind of presumption of some sort of internal landscape that may be marvelous and, and unpredictable and surprising, but has less of the the ontological bite yeah. uh, of the the, you know, potential existence um, of of others, but it also I think adds something very interesting to the whole approach to parapsychology because, as you point out in some of your work, that uh, if you look at the 20th century and and the growth from the the uh, early psychic researchers of the late 19th, early 20th century uh, through you know the work of Ryan at Duke, et cetera, et cetera, you see this increasing desire. For parapsychological experiments to be scientific, and indeed, they're there. You know, we've had Dean Radin on the show, and you know, one of my favorite lines of all the uh, interviews that I've done is that I asked him, you know, after decades of doing parapsychology research, what was the thing that he had learned the most about, and he answered the sociology of science. Mm. Uh, because it, it, they they had to tr they have to work so hard to sort of fit into the uh, limitations and constraints of of you know whatever typical science experiments. In fact, they yeah. have to do much much they have to go much farther than most people because they get hit on so much by skeptics. But yeah. it ends up taking the parapsychological moment outside of all of the lived experience of people's mm -hmm. desires, of intensity, of history, of, of, of conflict, all of the lived experiential context within which most parapsychological events or anomalous events seem to emerge. So in a way, it kind of undercuts itself by trying to be science, whereas you start bringing anthropology back in, you start to have to re-embed these mm -hmm problems, these events, these anomalies within a, a much larger context. So it's also kind of saying, hey, we need to 
if we're going to understand what parapsychology is or what psi things are, we mm-hmm. have to look at these anthropological domains as well. Yeah, it does. And I mean, one of the most interesting things I find um, from, I mean, anthropologists have reported their own anomalous experiences in the field. And when you look at these experiences, they're, you know, in terms of uh, like comparison with the, the kinds of effects that are observed in parapsychological experiments in labs, they're of a, a much greater magnitude. So there are anthropologists, Bruce Grindle, for example, saw um, a corpse reanimated during a divination ceremony. Um, Edith Turner saw an ectoplasmic kind of blob extracted from the back of uh, a patient during the Ahamba ritual. And these are kinds of like hardcore paranormal events. And uh, they occur within this kind of emotional, um, kind of heightened arousal kind of state, but coupled with cultural expectation and understanding and things. And that's what's really lacking in the parapsychological experiments, I think. That's why we see, uh, you know, really small PK effects in a lab, but in the real world, you know, it could be a, a reanimated corpse or you know, something like that. So there's, yeah. a, there's something to be learned there, I think, for parapsychology that they need to re-engage with that wider context. I mean, the early, early psychical researchers were field-based researchers. They were going to haunted houses and things and investigating in that way. And like, like you said, it's only with the kind of science, scientification of, um, of psychology, really, uh, that this lab, laboratory approach emerged kind of to legitimize um, psi research. But in doing that, yeah, like you say, it's, it's lost out on some of the, the deeper, richer uh, context. Well, it's, what's really fascinating is the way that even though most of, all of our lives, including the lives of scientists, most of them are spent in a non-lab environment where yeah. there's all of these complex social forces, expectations, psychological patterns, altered states, forms of you know me- media manipulation. Mm-hmm. All this stuff is going on all the time, and yet most of us – when when uh, faced with ontologically bizarre events like ghosts or or you know PK or whatever, uh, f- almost instinctively fall back onto this basic sort of scientific selection mechanism. Whereas, like, mm. is there a way that science might explain this? No. Okay. Therefore, this is, as they say, merely anecdotal. Mm-hmm. So even yep. though even though the anecdotes. If you piled them up, would make it make it to the moon, you know, like what what was it, uh, 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 you know, when um, no, I'm spacing on his name, Myers, when Frederick Myers was looking yeah. at the uh, the accounts that the uh, people have of seeing specters at the same moment that a loved one dies, you know, often yeah. remotely, you know, you, you get thousands of these things, mm-hmm. and in my own life, I have heard does uh, maybe a dozen people I yeah. know. Or people who know, people who know, just on that topic alone. And so you go, okay, mere anecdote, all right, I guess I know what you mean. But when the, when the anecdotes, you yeah. know, pile up like that, we, we got, you know, you got to like change the, the frame somewhat. And mm-hmm. so since that tendency to sort of go, is there a possible scientific explanation? No, therefore, it must be a lie or a complete delusion or whatever. That mechanism, which is really widespread, and it's particularly yeah. widespread in the academy. I mean, really, yes. the in terms of skepticism, you're going to find a lot more skeptics in social science departments and in humanities departments, as well as 
you know, uh, more science uh, of fields than you do in your in your average public. So when you as somebody who's, you know, work, working in this field, when you know, you got to make your case really well. How do you how do you begin to play with that sort of in, uh, insti- almost instinctive, yeah, you know, gut reaction. yeah, gut reaction yeah. to like, look, there's no way this could be real. Why are you paying attention to it? Is as anything more than delusion or mm-hmm. some kind of social psychology phenomena? Um, how did how did you, as a scholar, begin to kind of tease out other possibilities and, and work your way into a really a different framework of possible ontology. Mm. Well, to begin with, like, on one hand, I just kind of did it anyway because I was interested in it and I wasn't particularly worried about what other people would think about doing it because I could see that it was something, once I started to do my field work anyway, I could see that it was something that was, you know, real, as socially real as you can get, basically. But then on the other hand, Anthropology is kind of a unique discipline in the academy. I mean, all from the very beginning, even though the early anthropologists may have had a dismissive attitude, they were still interested in these topics. You know, even if they're, even if you know, we don't uh, necessarily agree with their conclusions anymore. And over time, this is kind of built up. So some of my research has been tracing the, the you know, the origins or the development of this. Uh, lineage in anthropology of certain anthropologists who are interested and I think really quite interestingly as well it's culminated with what in anthropology has recently been called the uh, ontological turn I don't know if you've come across that um, idea before yeah we've we've actually talked about it a bit on the show I mean I've talked to other anthropologists and and but but I'd love to hear your kind of account of what this sort of turn opens up for these kinds of discussions so I think in part, I kind of came around to the ontological turn by a different, a different lineage of anthropologists, but, but now I'm trying to engage with it a little bit more. And I can see that a lot of the ideas that seem to be coming through the ontological turn mesh in quite nicely with a lot of the uh, kind of experiential anthropology um, of the paranormal, which asks us to really engage with not other cultures necessarily, but other worlds so, and this is what I think the ontological turn is about. It's about moving away from ideas of like, of culture um, and symbol towards questions of uh, of reality and worlds. So, when we talk about, um, say, Amerindian um, Amerindian sh- shamanism, for example, we're talking about a whole other world. Okay, that's something that is is real that we can, to a certain extent, participate in ourselves and you know begin to document in that way. So it's moving away from thinking about thing, moving away from thinking about um, beliefs and culture, towards this idea of you know a more inclusive ontological idea of worlds. That's my my takeaway from it anyway. Yeah, I, I think that I mean one one way of of approaching that, and it seems to me it's it's really healthy thing to kind of take on these possibilities, regardless of where they they take you ultimately. Mm. And one one way that really uh, shined a light in my brain for describing this turn is that again, almost on an unconscious level, we've accepted a certain kind of Western view of ontology. And this is not the the usual Descartes dualism. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is this idea that 
Bruno Latour, you know, helps define, mm-hmm. and a lot of other people that deep in our in our basic sort of run, you know, axioms about the world is that there's one nature, one yeah. world of nature that is describable through physical laws that that science helps constru- build or construct, yeah. and then there are multiple cultures, multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. And everybody has their own perspective, their own way of interpreting reality or building their own cosmology. That's kind of the liberal approach. You know, oh, yeah, everybody has their own perspective. Great. No problem. Yeah. But they're it's all relativism. Right. That's relativism. And they're all a perspective on one nature that science can explain. And I suspect that a lot of people, even people who are very open to some weird things, kind of have that model really running on their, you know, in their ontological, you know, whatever, computer program. (laughs) But if you switch that or start to go actually different kinds of bodies or different practices or, you know, different environmental conditions, different creatures, whatever that side is, they actually live in different worlds or they produce different worlds. Last week we were talking, or a couple weeks ago, we were talking to Jorge Ferrer, who's a transpersonal psychologist. And he talks about this in terms of uh, spiritual experiences being co-created, that that um, that the reason there are multiple models of mystical experience, some with God, some with emptiness, some with Brahma, you know, mm-hmm. all these different kinds of experiences that people report, it's not that some of them are true and some of them aren't, or some of them are higher than the other ones. It's that part of what we do is to co-create this mm-hmm. kind of weird other world uh, through different models of, or through different sensory arrangements, through different practices, through different expectations. So we're really looking at kind of opening up, of, of, of acknowledging that we live in a multiverse, in yeah. a real way we live in a multiverse. And once you make that move, Lots of things become available, exactly. and, and things get more interesting. So, um, I will. I would like to, to, you know, you can riff off that, but also mm-hmm. I, I would really love to hear how you, you know, really started to perceive these other worlds in a in a more robust way, either through your field work or through your own experience. But really, where you started to get experiential feedback about the validity of the kinds yeah. of approaches that you have. Well. In terms of uh, experiential feedback on the validity, it kind of started, well, actually, I suppose I could take it back even further and say I'd had some kinds of experiences earlier on in my life that um, suggested that there might be other worlds, uh, that there might be other kinds of beings as well. So I'd had um, psychedelic experiences where I, I seemed to encounter what I thought of at the time as fairies. Um, I'd had a few strange, um, like hypnagogic kinds of experiences where things appeared to me and I was like, oh, there's something else I haven't seen before. And then all of this stuff really bubbled up and got is what got me interested in anthropology is the kind of the only way that I could study these things in the way that I wanted to. So when I got to writing my undergraduate dis- dissertation, I decided that I had to find people. I was living in Bristol at the time, um, and now living in Wales. I had to find people who were uh, every day kind of actively engaging with um, with these other worlds. So I thought, oh, spiritualists would be good people to talk to. 
Um, so I went to my local spiritualist church for a while and I tried to get involved there and talk to people. I mean, but as soon as I got there, this, I, this realization that there are other worlds was, you know, instantly obvious because people were talking about spirits as though they were everyday occurrences. Um, they were talking about, for example, I remember one day I went to the spiritualist church and the, they played, they had a CD player for when they were doing their services and they would play pop songs on them. Because if you've ever been to a spiritualist church, especially, well, in the UK anyway, they're very um, interesting, diverse places. And instead of hymns, they were singing um, pop songs that referenced angels and stuff like that. Anyway, one day this CD player was skipping and I heard people just behind me, you know, kind of matter-of-factly and also kind of half-jokingly, but saying that it was the spirits that were you know, responsible for this CD skipping. And it just became clear that, you know, for, for these people, the spirits are there, um, you know, in the most mundane things. It's not something that's abstract and, uh, and kind of like conceptual and distant. It's something that's there right now in the present world. So that was good. That demonstrated that, uh, that gave me this kind of feedback of the validity of their worldview to begin with. But unfortunately, I wasn't able to build up any kind of a, a rapport with people at the spiritualist church for a few different reasons that I've speculated about. Uh, so I decided I need to find more of a kind of uh, a tight knit group, a smaller group that I could interact with people easier with. So I went on the Internet to try and find a similar or you know, another place to do my research. And I stumbled across this group called the Bristol Spirit Lodge. And uh, that's who I've been doing my well who I did my field work with. Um, and basically, they were uh, literally just about 20, 10, 20 minutes down the road from where I was living, which was a nice coincidence. So I could just walk there easily. And they were a private home circle dedicated to developing trance and physical mediumship. So it's slightly different, actually very different, to the kind of mediumship I'd seen in the spiritualist churches, which is kind of like clairvoyant, um, platform mediumship. So at the Bristol Spirit Lodge, the very first seance I went to, I had some very, I guess, unusual but pro predominantly subjective, I, I think, experiences, which all, you know instantly showed that in the context of seances, it's possible to have these kinds of uh, weird anomalous experiences. And you know, so instantly, their kind of worldview was at least semi-validated to me which was good. So I saw like little flashes of light in, in the seance cabinet while the medium was in trance. And again, they seemed very subjective, but either way, it just shows that in that, in that context, you can have these kinds of experiences. Um, I saw the medium's face shift and transform and uh, appeared to you know, to, 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 to form other kinds of faces that kind of hovered over the medium's face, kind of like a mask. And there was one in particular that I saw that it was almost kind of like a Chinese monk face, you know, kind of like a stereotypical monk. Um, and it, it appeared over her face and then it just kind of slid down um, kind of onto her chest and then disappeared. And then it, it kind of repeated again. It went up again and then came back down, kind of like it was... a uh, you know, like a record stuck or something like that, which was quite strange. And I, I kept this to myself. I was like, okay, I've seen this thing. Um, I'll keep it to myself. I won't mention it to anyone. 
And then when we went out into the house again after the seance had finished to have uh, tea and cake and things and to talk about our experiences, independently they mentioned that they'd seen this Chinese monk face. So, again, another kind of validation of their worldview through my own experience. Yeah, that'll give you a shiver. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was strange. I mean, it wasn't scary. It was just, it was just unusual. <laughs> and then the most... For me, anyway, personally, the most interesting experience, which I've, I've talked about to lots of people in lots of places, is my possessed hand um, moment. So I was in a seance one day where the medium couldn't attend, so they decided they were going to do this, um, like an open development sitting, and invite spirits to make themselves known through anyone uh, who was in the room. And... I thought I would just, you know, embrace the opportunity and relax and do a little bit of meditation and things like that. Um, so they put the music on, they dip, dimmed the lights and put the red light on, and we all just sat meditating. And um, for a while it was normal, and then I suddenly felt uh, tingling in my hands. And um, my hand started to kind of quiver from side to side a little bit. And I started to feel as though I was um, slipping backwards out through the back of my body is the only way I can really describe it. Um, the only similar kind of experience I've had to that is um, with salvia divinorum. I had a similar kind of mini outer body experience with salvia. Um, and at the point that I felt the most detached, I heard the circle leader saying that she sensed a presence coming up. And I kind of freaked out because I felt this presence as well. And it's interesting, it, I think it ties back to one of my earlier experiences at the spiritualist church where the medium had, um, and it, it, we're talking totally different mediums, totally different social groups. The medium there had picked me out of the audience to give me a reading and said that they sensed um, a male presence with me. And I got this feeling that this male presence uh, was the one that they, they picked up on at the Bristol Spirit Lodge as well. It was making itself known to me. So anyway, I snapped out of my mini trance, mini out of body experience with a quivering hand. And um, I swore and I looked around the room and I was a little bit flustered because I didn't really know what was happening. And everyone just kind of laughed at me and let me know that it was, you know, it was kind of like a normal experience, if you, you know, in the early stages of developing mediumship. So I was like, okay, fair enough. I'll go into it again and see if it happens. And sure enough, it did. It happened again quite quickly this time. And the same feeling of sliding backwards out of my body, of my hand going tingly and then um, vibrating. And then before long, my whole arm, my left arm as well, I'm right-handed, so slightly um, weird. My left hand was uh, totally like shaking and moving around. And it was only later that I thought maybe, you know, I should have done a little bit of automatic writing or something. But anyway, this uh, experience was enough for me. I didn't want to develop to be a medium, you know, full time, but it was enough to show me that there are genuine experiences, at least, that people can have that the very, very least seem as though there is some kind of an external um, entity or an external um, consciousness uh, controlling them. So that was a major moment for me. And I can well imagine now, had I let that experience kind of overtake my whole body, um, that it could well feel as though you were possessed, for example. 
Yeah, I, I'd have to chime in with you know, reasonably similar experiences in different contexts, but but not mm-hmm. not on psychedelics where uh, I've you know sort of entered into trance states. Some were specifically possession rituals. Some was holotropic breath work, and I yeah. walked away from these experiences going, well, you know what, I'm just one of those kinds of people that if I were in a culture, living in a culture where there was regular spirit possession, that I would be one of those people. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I, I, you know, and it's a very weird feeling to know that like right now I'm not, you know, I, I, I can't fully embody or fully speak for the experience of having an, a, a, an external entity move through me or speak through me or move mm-hmm. my body around. I, that would be an untrue claim. And yet, yeah. I've been on the the lip of that a number of times with a very clear yeah. sense that all I needed to do was just ramp up the trance just a little bit more and then things were that were already a little bit moving out of my control would become quite more drastically out of out of out of control. Yeah. You, uh, you know, one of the things you brought up in one of your articles about spirit possession that really kind of blew my mind is that uh you know the caveat that that neurological readings don't tell us everything and in some ways actually obscure some of the real questions. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, that there actually hasn't been that much, uh, you know, hardcore data on what's happening to people when they go through these kinds of experiences. Like I would have thought this would have been studied up the wazoo by now, but yeah. th- there's really not that much, right? Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's starting to change slowly. I think as um, kind of like neuroimaging technology gets better, it's becoming easier to do these kinds of studies in the field. And I only know of one study in particular that that, stud, that investigated traditional uh, spirit possession in Bali with neuroimaging, but they found pretty interesting results. But definitely from the, the research that has been done, which again, like, is is quite scant, but there has been some. Uh, it seems as though mediums do enter into a distinctive uh, state of consciousness, a particular altered state when they're going into their trances. Not saying that all mediums go into the same altered state, just that there are genuine neurophysiological changes that are taking place. So there definitely needs to be more research into exploring what these neurophysiological changes mean, and you know whether the experience is something that arises from neurophysiology or whether the neurophysiological changes are something that happen as a result of the experience or the process of mediumship. But it's definitely an interesting area of research. And uh, thankfully, there are now people who are starting to to push the envelope on these things um, and investigating the neurophysiology of mediumship. And it is interesting. One of the most recent studies I remember is... um, a study of uh, automatic writers in Brazil. They found that, and it, it came out around about the same kind of time as um, Robin Carr Harris's psychedelic research with psilocybin, where it suggested that there were decreases in brain activity at the peak of psychedelic experiences, which obviously seems um, counterintuitive, but that's the case. Anyway, this mediumship research showed that there were decreases in activity in experienced um, automatic writers, especially in the areas that, of the brain that are usually associated with performing complex tasks like um, like writing. So it's more like some kind of a shutdown of the brain, um, possibly to allow something through rather than um, what you might expect to see, like these areas of the brain lighting up to perform these complex activities. 
So there's a lot of interesting possibilities that open up with that line of research. Absolutely. I mean, well, certainly, I mean, this is just subjective, you know, interpretation, but it, it certainly feels that way. I mean, as someone mm. who's done a lot of meditation and has entered a number of trances of varying yeah. types on the natch, it, it often, I'm, I'm, I'm often aware of uh, the sense of a certain kind of part of my consciousness zone, just shutting up or falling asleep or, mm. you know, taking a chill pill, you know, it's like, yeah. you can almost sense like, oh, like, uh, like the, it's, a, it's a different category, but it's just worth like, uh, exploring a bit. Um, you know, in, in, in meditation, you know, you often have this, you're, you're sort of the sort of a tension between the chattering mind and the sort of more spacious, uh, calm press field of presence. And I've even had the experience of getting sleepy, like, oh, I'm getting kind of sleepy and kind of allowing myself to sink down into the shutdown of sleep, not really Mm -hmm. fully falling asleep, but just kind of shutting down and then kind of reemerging into awakeness, but with a a whole chunk of the chatter gone. So -hmm. it's almost like, oh, I'm there's some kind of way of like letting a part of this go to sleep. And it, it, it. it feels to me that that's a, a you know both from the subjective exploratory side and from the you know objective studying side that mm-hmm. part of what we're talking about here is certain functions of the brain cutting out and allowing other things to maybe step forward uh, yeah. without that control in a way uh, that to let you know other very interesting uh, things happen. Yeah. But but we're still facing this question. Okay, great. There are these this these phenomenological experiences that people have you can see behavioral signs they mm. all there's some cultural story about entities nonetheless there's that, that that i think is a line in the sand for a lot of the a lot of people where you go look i can't yeah. begin to describe any sort of separate being to mm-hmm. these entities because i can say oh it's a combination of altered states of a cultural story of some kind of functions of the brain that we don't understand of cultural expectations blah blah yeah. blah you know i've read you we've all read these things they're mm-hmm. they're you know reasonably thorough they're not they're not you know pulling it out of their whatever but uh <laughs> but it's still insufficient and yep. and um you know i could i guess what i would say is that for someone who's on the who's again like kind of on the the fence who's like mm-hmm. no it, it feels like this this isn't quite right but you, you know you're not they're not ready to just go okay there must be other dimensions and other beings who are interacting <laughs> with us all time you know it's like that's that's a lot to take on it but is. there's a there's a middle zone there's a yeah. place that your work and the work of a lot of people you know in history too but i think especially the last you know 10 years 20 years yeah. Um, that that are are really trying to open up a kind of middle space, a kind mm-hmm. of middle middle path of of allowing possibilities to arise without going whole hog into some kind of new age cosmology or yeah. you know complete idealist view of the world's just a production of mind or you know things that still respect science, still respect physicalism, still respect yeah. psychology. And I'd like to hear from you how you map that middle zone, how you begin to sort of describe or even invite people into thinking a different way that allows a a broader range of phenomena, their their sort of ability to show up and to present themselves. Yeah. So uh, I've – my name for this, um, which I've been using for a while now, is um, ontological flooding. 
uh, it's basically an idea that emerged. I mean, it's not particularly a new idea, but it's my kind of, you know, my rejigging of it. And it, it emerged from the observation that in the social sciences, we've tended, like, as we've already mentioned, to bracket out questions of ontology. So we don't want to, we don't want to ask those questions. We want to focus on issues of belief and things. Okay. So that's the way, um, that's the way mainstream social science has, has functioned for a long time. So my idea of ontological flooding is that we take away these ontological brackets. We take away the brackets that are holding back in Charles Fort's terms, the damned facts, and we kind of let them flow. So that means that this kind of this frame of mind that we have to get ourselves into of being ontologically flooded means that we have to be open to multiple possibilities simultaneously. It's not like, um, what, what I'm basically saying is that we shouldn't expect to be able to find one simple complete answer to anything. There's always um, a huge deal of complexity going on. Uh, if we can think in terms of, um, you know, interrelated systems and the complexity that arises from, from that. I mean, that this is the, the angle that I'm moving towards. So ontological flooding is this frame of mind where we're open to this, uh, all of these ontological possibilities, where we treat them all um, on the same kind of uh, a level playing field. So that means that we have to come to the acceptance that, you know, our dominant Western materialist um, ontology isn't the only way of thinking about the world. It's not the only way of experiencing or being in the world, that there are loads and loads, potentially infinite numbers of ways that we can live in the world. Well, as you just say, so one of the things that I love about what you're describing, which very much resonates with, with my own work and just my own development as I've been thinking about these things for so long, and it took me a long time because I was really... You know, I, I always really respected science and critical thinking and the power of skepticism and the power of doubt, even as I kept thrusting, mm -hmm. thrusting myself into these other possibilities, both my own experiences and in reading about these things. And so I, I never wanted to just make a quick shift to like embracing it all. And, yeah. and so I have also come to this point of just like embracing instead complexity and multiple accounts, of, you know, multi-perspectival accounts that, yeah. you know, everything is, is embedded in, in, in multiple perspectives and that you just and, – and, and then ultimately, and this is the point I wanted to make about hearing you describe it, um, is that in addition to being, I think, both intellectually richer and also more ex uh, more correct to actual the actual fabric of experience that our that our fundamental experience of the world is multiple that we live in a pluriverse. I mean, it might ultimately yeah. be one thing, but it's it's stupid to believe that it's just one thing and to constantly collapse everything onto one layer of, exp mm -hmm. of explanation. That seems like actually incorrect as well as unhelpful. But yeah. the question I wanted to ask you with, and I know this is also a import, real important thing to your work and to yourself, is that there's a, a profound ethical dimension to this. That yeah. once you make this switch, suddenly the world is a much more rich place with a lot of other claims, a lot of agents, a lot of mm. demands, a lot of ways of... of um, of being that you kind of have to honor. You have to, there's a sort of like element of, of respect that goes yeah. into this opening of the field, even to the point of being like, look, this other entity that I, that is seeming to appear within this ritual or within my own experience, 
it's very I, I I'm you know I can think about the way in which that's just a psychological product that's just a product of culture and expectation I can think of that mm-hmm. nonetheless when this entity appears and arrives my gut instinct and not just my gut instinct but also my my social imagination my uh, empathy my you know even some of the most sophisticated parts of my relationship with the world light up and I suddenly feel complete compelled in an ethical way to at least grant this other some place to be, some place mm-hmm. where there's some kind of relationship, to just yeah. insist, oh, it's an illusion, ignore it, it's just, it, it seems ethically com- uh you know, compromised as well mm-hmm. as sort of intellectually a little, a little weak. And I, and I know that you've talked, you've been talking more recently about animism, about relating to the earth, about how these issues are really supercharged by our, our environmental crisis, et cetera. Yeah. So I'd love to hear, hear you talk about, you know, intellectually or personally or both about uh, that ethical dimension of opening up to these multiple worlds. Okay, so <clears throat> I've been thinking about the ethical dimension a little bit recently as well because we see in the world today lots of uh, crazy, weird, uh, not weird in a good way, terrible things going on. Um, and it would seem, you know, that opening up to possibilities in this way means that we have to also open up to the possibility that, you know, the the world that, say, <clears throat> someone something like isis for example is living in is also um real uh which obviously opens up some seriously you know deep ethical problems and i think this is something that i need i need to think about a little bit more as well but what recently one of the solutions i came to for thinking about this kind of thing was um from some of my work do with permaculture recently. So I don't know if you know much about permaculture, but um, it's kind of like a, a system of design um, that, that bases itself on the kinds of things, that, on, on the, the kind of systems that we see in nature. So in order to be um, you know, as productive as possible, in, in the example of a garden, but you could also take it to society or whatever, we should be kind of emulating the, the processes that we observe in nature. So I was talking about this with some students at college and they said, well, when you look at nature, you see um, all sorts of kind of like vicious predators and things that are destroying, you know, just basically destroying certain parts of the ecosystem, obviously in balance, but there's still violence and stuff in there. And I thought, I thought about this and I was like, well, I I can't argue with that. There is violence and there is, um, I guess you could call it like, um, natural evil in the world but when you look at nature when you look at an ecosystem and think about you know when is the ecosystem thriving when is the ecosystem at its most flourishing kind and this idea um, like aristotle's idea of eudaimonia comes to mind here that you know human beings should be able to flourish um, just like ecosystems have flourished it's not in those moments when a predator is killing um you know killing a mouse or whatever. It's not those moments when the ecosystem is at its 100% peak flourishing moment. It's when everything is in balance and in harmony. And so it seems to me that, you know, going down this ontological flooding route could open, 
could pave the way for accepting the possibility that other, you know, less savory worlds might be true. Um, but through kind of framing it like this, you can see that the ultimate good, or I don't know if I want to call it, to call it the ultimate good, but flourishing anyway, emerges when all of these worlds are in harmony with each other. Does that make sense? No, it does. I mean, I, th I think another way of saying it is is that the the view of these this kind of multiple co-created realities in the plural uh, it 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 lends itself towards a more systemic view, towards a mm -hmm. more ecological view that is less about any particular perspective or any particular creature or particular slice, and more about the dynamics of the whole and. And once you acknowledge that, then there's another kind of sort of ethical set of norms or values that can be derived from the difference between healthy, robust, more or less. Ba I mean, the term balance, I'm not really sure that that ever really mm -hmm. happens in nature or in any kind of ecosystem. No. But but let's call it a, a rich, dynamic, flourishing versus something that is like pared down to the bone. And so yeah. – from that view, an, an absolutist worldview like ISIS produces its realities uh, mm -hmm. for sure. But the absolutism of, the, of them makes them extremely uh, monocultural, very, um, you know, uh, the, the, it's just us and them. And in a way, it kind of dies. It begins to die. In, in fact, it is a kind of death. I mean, it's, yeah. they'll, they'll be explicit about it. I mean, they'll, they're like, you know, there was an amazing uh vice documentary where they went and hung out with isis you know relatively early on when they could still yeah. do that they just got in a plane and went there and, and hung out with these guys and, the, and and at one point they're hanging out with these two dudes and they asked them like hey well you guys got families and they're like oh yeah i've got a wife and a new daughter and da, da, da. And they're like uh do you miss them and they, they say no no it's like life you're only really alive when you're like facing death mm. and that the, and that they saw the kind of lures of family and connection with their their daughters and stuff to be like a, a kind of trap that keeps them away from mm. God. That's only yeah. with death that you're in line with with God. And so there's this kind of death worshiping aspect of a lot of worldviews that also seems to you know, in a way, like give you a sense of of, uh, of of a possible value judgment you might make from this ecosystemic point of view. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really tricky stuff. It's really yeah. hard to try to come up with a value system once you open up to all these plural yeah. worlds. And I think it's part of the pro one of the problems that we're going on right now is that the kind of multicultural, liberal, progressive view. It doesn't have as con concrete and coherent a kind of value structure as a more reactionary view where it's very clear what mm. the value structure is. And it has its own internal sense, its own kind of yeah. claim on reality. So I think we're all, you know, swimming about in these possibilities right now for, for, for a reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was, just, I was just thinking about, about ISIS again and how – you're saying that you know they're kind of like reducing everything to to death uh to or reducing everything to a certain point but it, it is just that it's just a hardcore version of reductionism and uh it as we know from permaculture and things like that it's reductionism is is not the way forward we want to have flourishing we want to have you know complexity and uh yeah isis are, are reducing whereas we should be 
complexifying. Absolutely. Now, and, and we just have about like seven minutes left, but since we're talking about uh, we've gone in this direction, and mm. um, I'd love to hear you just say a few things about about animism and the and the way in which the kind of um, social scientific perspective that we've been talking about here, the kind of you know broadening of of the mind to take in other realities, or at least the possibility of other realities, how that resonates with and sort of sets up in a way. A, a deeper encounter with what we've called, uh, you know, animism. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> my angle on animism recently anyway has been on how we can um, use animism as a way of changing our behaviors uh, with regard to, you know, the ecological crisis. So I've been thinking specifically about, you know, what would it mean if, even if we didn't necessarily believe it, you know, and I'm talking about the, for the majority of people, even if we didn't necessarily believe it, what if we behaved as though an animist worldview was, you know, was real? And uh, how would that impact our behaviours? Uh, if we labelled our rivers and streams you know, as persons rather than as resources or things like that, then we should we could be able to bring about some kind of a positive change, uh, a more kind of respectful relationship with the natural environment. So that's one of the angles I've been taking. And I, it's actually led down some interesting routes because I find that um, in, the, in my local area, in Wales, for example, we talk about wanting to maybe um, kind of grant the river's personhood status like they've been doing in New Zealand and um, in uh, India recently, where, in fact, we find that these rivers and places have already been granted personhood status, but, you know, in our kind of ancestral past. Uh, so it's led me down this route of looking at um, our local folklore around here and how our local folklore could be used as a way of re-engaging, especially uh, young people, especially children as well, with with their local environment. So it's kind of like bring back these stories of when there were giants uh, living up the valley or when there were magical stones or dragons in the rivers and get the kids to think in those terms about how they're going to relate to the river now. Like, how do you relate to the river now that you know that it has a dragon that lives in it, for example? Uh, so this is part of, you know, this is my angle on animism at the moment, that it might be as well as, you know, being open to the possibility that it is a whole real other world. For most people, most people are not going to want to accept that, uh, you know, for various reasons that we've already discussed. Um, but yeah, I think it's just a new way, well, not even a new way, an old way that we can re-engage with our environment. Yeah, it's really interesting to think how, how what forms of re-enchantment will emerge, because I don't think mm. they're going to look just like the old forms. Uh, no. That there, there's, there's the, Again, we're looking at a way of mixing, of having multiple perspectives that are, are superimposed or that we can modulate between and there's different contexts where one language takes predominance over over another one and it, mm -hmm. it feels like on the one hand that that's really happening and then sometimes it seems uh, more more distant and elusive at least in in the west yeah. um, you know that's one of the reasons I I, I, I like you are, are interested in, in psychedelic culture is that mm. Uh, outside of its own particular interests, it, it also models, like, I think, an interesting way of moving between 
more scientific or naturalistic registers and more enchanted ones, sort of acknowledging yeah. that they're they're both going on. You know, uh, yeah. you talk about uh, ontological flooding, and I'm really mm -hmm. interested in this idea of to use another long version of the word uh, metabolic ontology. You know, where you're like mm -hmm. the, the metabolic encounter with the with the molecule sets up a sort of envelope of reality creation that that allows mm -hmm. all these things to happen and yet also has a kind of pretty reliable uh, process through the system. And it's and it, I like this idea, uh, like a lot of the things that you've been talking about, because it, it, it points towards a way of being open to these experiences without losing the respect for the naturalistic perspective, recognizing its own limitations, but also its own its own ca uh, capabilities and its own necessity as we go forward with the immense complex technological and scientific systems we have to deal with. We, it's not going to, it's not sufficient to just believe in the giants again. There's something else that has some other kind of marriage or, or rapprochement that needs to happen between uh, different claims about uh, reality. Yeah, definitely. So uh, what, what, what are you doing now? You, I know you have – I wanted to mention you have an a, a, a edited book that came out recently called Dan Facts about Charles Fort. I'm afraid we didn't have time to talk about <laughs> That's all right. Fort and, uh, and intermediatism. So people have to check that out. And I also wanted to let uh, listeners know that if they go to uh, academia.edu and search mm -hmm. on uh, Jack Hunter, they're going to find a, a plethora of articles. And they're, they're very illuminating and, and uh, very, very worthwhile. What else do you got coming up? Well, at the moment, I'm trying to focus on um, finishing my PhD thesis off. So that's taken up a lot of my time. Um, but other than that, I've got another issue of paranthropology, you know, pretty, pretty much ready to go out. Don't know when I'll get a chance to to finally release it, but it's pretty much ready. And then after that, there's also a kind of burgeoning idea of doing a book about psychedelic um, spirit encounters, uh, another edited book, kind of like Talking with the Spirits, Volume Two. Um, so I'm trying to gather together writers who are interested in exploring those kinds of topics. So maybe if you're interested, you could contribute to that, um, well, and anyone so else could get in touch. Great. Well, sounds like uh, wonderful stuff. Uh, Jack, thanks again for joining us on Expanding Mind. Okay, thank you very much. All right, folks, uh, until, uh, until next week, heed, heed uh, Jack's advice and keep your minds open. <laughs>